want to call your attention to uh, the fact that I'm not the normal pastor here, not normally preaching. Um, I didn't say that last time, didn't want it to be confusing to people. I'm actually, uh, lead the music here, and uh, I'm the pastor's son-in-law, so in case you were wondering, now you can put a little bit of placement on it. Thank you, Jack. (laughs) Thank you, Jack. He's out of town, so I'm filling in. All right. Post-Christian. Have you heard that term before, post-Christian? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Post-Christian is uh, the, the sociological way to describe America and most of Europe. It's a sociological term to describe the decline of the majority worldview from a Christian worldview to not that. It is as if it's passed through areas, Christianity, and now has declined in those, those areas. Now, whatever you believe about that, I'm sure you can sense it a little bit, right? You can sense a, a bit of a decline in the loudest voice in the room, so to speak. It's not the voice of Jesus most of the time. And I think, you know, you can debate the statistics. Some people say, oh, 70% of, of Americans are, are Christians. And I say, yeah, uh, baloney, kind of, because I, I, don't, I don't know if I believe that. You know, 70% of America um, is not following Jesus, I would say. But I would say, you know, maybe that statistic reflects some kind of belief in God and belief in morals, something to that effect. But but I think there's, there's a, a truth here, and there's a reality in which we may need to come to grips with the fact that we are more of a minority than we think we are. We are, in fact, you could say, exiles, which has never been a problem for the people of God before. In fact, most of the history of the people of God is spent in exile in another place where they are the minority culture. Almost always, exile slaves in Egypt, exiles in Babylon. The early church movement is, in fact, just a small network of a minority counterculture. And I I feel like we can kind of resonate with that a little bit today. And so the question we ask this morning is, how is it that we be faithful exiles, a faithful minority counterculture surrounded by one that does not believe in what we believe in? The temptation for us is to conform, to assimilate, to bleed in fully and just immerse ourselves into the culture. And the other temptation is to recoil and to cloister and hide ourselves from the world. And neither one of those is best. There's, there's a better way. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about, and that's what we're going to look at today. Book of Daniel, chapter 2, it's about 60... 8% of the way through the Bible, approximately, if you're, if you're looking. It's a book that we don't really go to very often in church, and when we do go there, we're usually bringing up prophecy charts, but we're not going to be doing that today so much. To, let me lay down the context. The book of Daniel is about four friends. Four friends, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You probably know most of them by their Babylonian names, which they took on. Uh, which was Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which would be just a great 2018 hipster baby names list. Some of you clickbait people know what I'm talking about. 
These men were taken as the prize of Judah when Babylon came in, took, took captivity. They didn't annihilate the land of Israel. They didn't take out completely Judah. But what they did was they took spoils. They took the best men, the best young men, and, and these were uh, four of them. They were men of resolve, young men, teenagers probably, but they devoted themselves to God. And it says in chapter 1, verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. That's a bit of the character of Daniel. And these four men were found to be ten times better than their peers that surrounded them in the education of Babylon. And when they're taken in, these four men are taken into exile, a term that we've already talked about a little bit. Exile is when a person or people are taken from their home forcibly and made to live in another place, a culture that is not their own. They are outsiders. They are not settled. They are not home. They must learn to speak, and they do in the book of Daniel. They learn to speak the language of the Babylonians. They uh, surround themselves uh, with uh, Babylonian culture, and they even take government jobs. They even work for the government that took them, and none of that's a problem. But there's a few non-negotiables. There's a few things that they cannot compromise on. And we read about that in chapter 1 is, is, is food. And so there are, there are some things that they choose not to conform in. And uh, in, their, in their doing this, they, they reveal how, how being a faithful exile works. And, and I want you to know a little bit about where they're taken. So these four men are taken as exiles into Babylon, which if you've been reading your Bible, you already know a little bit about If you've come into this, you kind of understand what Babylon is. Babylon, big, bad, mighty kingdom, okay? The king of the world, they had a thousand-year reign on earth, and we read about it in Genesis chapter 11. The the start, the very first time we hear of Babylon is when the people gather together, and they want to build a tower, and they want to make a name for themselves, and they want to build it up to the heavens so that people will know who they are. And in doing that, it makes a really interesting detail. Just keep this little nugget in your brain. It says they did not want to use stone. Instead, they used bricks for stone. They made their own stone as brick. We'll get there. All right, you ready to dive in? You're like, yeah, I thought we already did. Chapter 2. Verse 1, in the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, the king of of Babylon, the king in this case, really, the king of the world from their perspective. He's the king of the entire world as they know it. They have never seen a place that is outside of his authority, can't sleep at night. The most powerful guy in the world. He can't sleep at night. He's, he's woken up by a nightmare. And, and it seems like he's had this nightmare multiple times. And, and he needs to know what it means. And so he calls in his wise men to tell him the meaning. Come, t- t- tell me what, what this dream means. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Good start. Tell your servants the dream and we will show you the interpretation. Tell us, tell us the dream and we'll, we'll interpret it for you. That's what we do. The king answered and and said to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid to ruins. (laughs) But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream 
and its interpretation. Listen, I'm not going to let you just make something up that makes sense for an interpretation. Here, tell me the dream. Prove to me that you are, in fact, as wise as you think you are. Tell me the dream. <laughs> what do you dream about? You know, like, what, do you, what would you say there? I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to get down this rabbit hole of what people dream about. But uh, my dreams are weird. So I, I don't know. I wouldn't guess what he was dreaming. I'm sure his dreams are quite weird as well. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. Verse 8, and the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. I'm not budging on this one. And I love this. Here's what they say. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. King, you're being unreasonable. (laughs) Careful what you say to a king. Verse 12, Because of this, the king was angry and very furious. And he commanded the wise men of Babylon, be destroyed. (laughs) It is not looking good. And if you're remembering from chapter 1, because, again, we're just plopping this story uh, a little bit out of context, and you didn't read chapter 1 this morning, you know, already. Maybe you did. That was good timing if you did. Um, You'll know that Daniel and his friends were just promoted to the category wise men. Okay? So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Daniel and his companions, in a foreign nation, as exiles, promoted to wise men, are now on death row uh, because of something that they didn't even really seem to know about, just by association of wise men who failed at their task, uh, unreasonably so by the king, but failed nonetheless. In verse 14, then Daniel replied, with prudence and discretion, to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men. Daniel, if you're, if you're going to be encountering somebody who's going to kill you, reply with prudence and discretion. Some of your translations say wisdom and tact. It's very like just, it's the opposite of putting your foot in your mouth, okay? Don't, if, you're, if these people are powerful enough and have the right to kill you, this is a good tactic, After replying with prudence and discretion, he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? What's the big deal? Why is this such a big deal to the king that we all be destroyed immediately? Well, obviously we know the king is, uh, his spirit is troubled and he's angry and very furious. This building rage within him, ready to spew out on anybody who, who disappoints him. And Ariok made the matter known to Daniel. Listen, Daniel, the king had a dream, and nobody knows what the dream is, but he wants to know what it means. But he won't tell anybody what it means. <laughs> he's making them tell him what it means, and he's going to confirm it with a yes or a no. And Daniel's like, okay, we need time. 
And for some reason, it works. I don't know, you know, I guess it's part of Daniel's prudence and discretion, his wisdom intact in handling this situation. He's able to actually get the very thing that the king was angry about the other wise men for asking for was time. They were stalling, and somehow Daniel gets an appointment with the king. He gets into his Outlook calendar by calling his secretary or something. I don't know. I don't know how that would work. I would imagine it would be quite difficult to get an appointment with a king. Um, but maybe in this matter, uh, not so bad. So he gets an appointment with the king, and 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 really here for Daniel and, and his friends, it's bleak. Things are not looking very good for them, okay? This is death row, the most powerful man who has ever lived and is ruling over the entire world as they know it, wants to kill them. So, I mean, they're as good as dead. And how do they respond? Well, they don't respond in the way that I would typically respond, which is panic, <laughs> Or at the very least, pity. I would pity myself. The king wants to kill us. We're going to die unless the Lord shows us mercy tonight. So let's pray. Let's pray. Let's get together and let's pray. And and they respond not with panic and not with pity, but with prayer instead. They don't they don't wallow and they don't they don't freak out. They go to God in this sort of weird confidence. And you know that their hearts have got to be beating like crazy, and you know that there is a sense of urgency in their hearts, and yet they still go to God first and, and they, they go together and the, the four of them I could just picture them in a circle in the small room praying and they prayed and they pray and then the night comes in the small oil-lit room, they pray and they pray and they pray and they continue. And as the night continues and they pray on into it, Daniel all of a sudden stops. And he sees. And he says, I get it. I can see it now. It is great and mighty and exceedingly bright. I can see it. It's frightening. And he goes, I don't just see it, but I know what it means. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, now, I'm going to stop right there. Can you see in your Bible how it looks a little differently right there? How, how it kind of moves from the, the block to this sort of more open? Do you see that in your Bible? That's a, that's a clue. It's a poem. Daniel sings a song in response to God answering his very urgent prayer. Whenever you see this in the Bible, it's always important. Okay, I'm going to just say a blanket, which they, you know, I feel nervous about saying things like that, but it's always important because, because they embed these little songs in these stories to illuminate meaning. And, and maybe you've been to a concert before. Have you ever been to a concert? Like, I mean, I'm picturing, I've heard this before with like folk artists. And, and, you know, you'll hear them and they'll tell you, I wrote this song when I was feeling sad. And they'll give you this story beforehand and then they'll sing the song. And all of a sudden, because they told you that story, you could have already heard that song and it's kind of illuminated this new meaning to it. You know what I'm talking about? And, and it kind of works the other way. They speak into each other. So they may maybe tell you the story and then they sing the song and you go, oh, wow, now I understand the song and what it meant it for you in that life experience. But vice versa, the, the song now helps you understand their feeling in that life experience and what the song is about. They kind of have a dialogue with each other. 
This happens in the Bible all the time. Um, there's these poems, these songs implanted into narrative stories, and they're there as these sort of embedded clues to help you get kind of a whiff of what the story's about, okay? So I'm going to ask you to participate here and, and try to get the whiff of what the story's about, okay? I'll read it. I'll read the song, and you come up with some things as you're listening uh, about what you think this story's all about. Daniel answered and said, verse 20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. All right, what did you notice? Did you catch anything? Any themes arise? Say it. I'm asking for participation. Did you notice anything? Say it. Blessed wisdom. Wisdom. I heard that, right? Did you guys hear wisdom or knowledge in there? A God. Yes, God. So, God, um, uh, did you notice God forever and ever? God sets up kings over seasons. God, God of might. My, my, maybe yours says power. My, my translation says might. The word might happens multiple times. Power happens multiple times. The word wisdom happens multiple times or knowledge multiple times. You see this theme of, of God having this sort of superiority of both wisdom and power kind of coming through in Daniel's song? Now, now think about this in light of the story that we've already heard. Contrast him to the wise men of Babylon. Like, this is very difficult, <laughs> says the wise men of Babylon. But God is the revealer of mysteries who gives wisdom and knowledge to those who have it. What about the king, the most powerful man in the world, the most powerful man up at this point to have ever lived, who's troubled in his sleep, who can't get to bed because he's afraid of his nightmares, compared to the God who sets up kings and deposes kings and even changes time and seasons. Starting to see it now a little bit? See how this, see how this poem speaks backwards into the text we've already read. Now watch it speak forwards. So Daniel knows the dream. He knows not just the dream, but its interpretation. And so he goes and he, he sets up a meeting with the king, verses 24, and um, you, can, you can read that. And then, and then Arioch, the king's captain, brings him forward to the king. Now, I, I mean, pick, I'm serious here. Picture this. It's, like, it's not like going to the principal's office or the boss's office. This is going to the king's throne. So this is a big deal. And if he messes this up, he is dead, right? We already know that he's, he's dead if he messes this up. And you can just imagine walking up with the king's captain all the way up to the throne and seeing Nebuchadnezzar on the throne. And Arioch says to the king, I have found among the exiles of Judah a man who will make known to the king, uh, make known the king the interpretation. And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? All right. Daniel's ready. Okay, big moment. 
Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. Good start. (laughs) This is exactly what they said before when he got angry and very furious. It's like he's kind of setting himself up here. But there is a God in heaven. I mean, this sounds so much like what the, what the other said, right? There, nobody can do this. Only the gods in heaven, you know, the, the gods, and they don't dwell with flesh. You know, you can just imagine Nebuchadnezzar clutching his arms of his throne, knuckles turning white as he waits for Daniel to finish the sentence. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the later days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Oh, isn't that so? Doesn't that pump you up? You know, like Daniel is just given this, um, you know, I played slow-pitch softball. I played one game of slow-pitch softball, and it was just like they threw up, the ball to me, and I just, it looked so juicy, and I wanted it so bad, and I just whiffed, and I just, I swung so early, and I completely missed it, and it's like, I feel like that's somehow, sometimes how I do it, but Daniel knocks it out of the park. He's he's ready for it. He's ready to go. Daniel says a number of things. One, humans uh, can't explain this mystery. There's no human on earth who can understand what you're asking for. Number two, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Number three, your dream is of future things that are going to come. Number four, it's not because I'm wiser than anybody else. Number five, the dream was revealed for the king's benefit. That's interesting, huh? It's so that the king would know. That's why God gave Daniel the understanding, so that the king could know what was troubling him. Are you ready for the dream? All right, ready or not, here it comes. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. Some of your translations maybe say statue. Um, Image, statue, same word. We'll come back to that in a little bit, but just keep that in mind. This image, mighty and exceeding in brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. And the head of the image was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As he looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces, and the gold all together with the broken pieces. Oh, uh, the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, and the gold all together were broken into pieces. And became like chaff on the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. 
That actually sounds kind of like one of my dreams. I feel like I've had dreams sort of along these lines. <laughs> I've had a lot of dumb dreams as well, but, you know, I don't know what you guys dream about. Maybe it's big giant images and rock mountain growth things. I don't know. But um, this, this is the dream that the king has dreamed. It is a statue, an image, and it's got these four metals and these sections, and it kind of goes gold, silver, bronze, and iron, and clay and iron together, and uh, then this, this stone comes in and smashes the feet, and then everything falls together and then just kind of turns into dust and blows away, and there's no trace of it, and then this rock grows and becomes a giant mountain and fills the whole earth. Weird dream. Verse 36 isn't this, isn't this good? I feel like I'm re- there's a lot of scripture here, but I, it's, it's very compelling. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall crush all these. And you saw feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, shall be a divided kingdom. There shall be some firmness of iron in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom will be divided, partly strong, partly, bri- partly brittle. And you saw iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. Uh, I just, they will not hold together, <laughs> just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, here we go, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and broken to pieces. The iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. A great God has made this known to the king. It shall be after this. The, um, what shall be after this? The dream is certain, and it's interpretation. T- interpretation, Sure. Okay, so iron, clay, mixing, you know, just stick with it, okay? We can do this. Before you get out your prophecy charts. Nebuchadnezzar, head of gold. He's the king. He's been given authority by God, Daniel says. The king of kings, kind of strange. The king of kings, he's quite literally the king of the kings of the earth, right? I mean, there's no king above Nebuchadnezzar at this point. Babylon lasted a thousand years, this big, prosperous kingdom. But... But after this, there's going to be another kingdom, and it's going to rise in its place. And then another kingdom after that, and then another kingdom after that. And, and, and notice the, the rock that comes in that, that crushes all these other things. It says, in those days, God's going to set up another kingdom. The rock is what? The kingdom of God. Okay? And it will never be destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar looks back at Daniel mouth agape, you know. He wanted, this is exactly what he wanted, and I'm sure he was still surprised. The king fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel, 
and commanded an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, listen to this. See if you remember this. Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. What does that sound like? It sounds like Daniel's song. The king echoes in his confession the song that Daniel broke out into after the king, uh, after the God answered him in prayer. And then the king promoted Daniel and gave him a bunch of great gifts, and he promoted his friends. Wow. Cool story, right? I mean, you have to admit that that's just a good story, you know, overall. You can't, you can't get away from that. But, but what on earth could this mean? <laughs> what difference does this make? You know, 2,700-ish years ago, a king's mysterious statue nightmare, which troubled him, is interpreted exclusively by a young Jewish man about the falling of his kingdom and a string of other kingdoms after that. If you put it that way, it seems rather irrelevant, but it's not. It is so dang relevant. It is so dang relevant because the, the, the whole book of Daniel, I think, and, and especially this chapter, is teaching us something about, about what it means to be a faithful exile, which I hope from the beginning I somewhat convinced you that you are uh, a minority counterculture embedded in a culture that doesn't honor God. And the question is, how do these guys, how do these four exiles remain faithful to God in a nation of Babylon that's surrounded by ungodliness, and, and how, do they, how, do they, how do they be there and still be the people of God? What does that mean? Well, it means being a faithful exile. And what a faithful exile does, here's what it all comes down to. Faithful exiles expose the superior kingdom of God. Faithful exiles expose God's superior kingdom. That's what it all comes down to. That is what it all comes down to for Daniel and for his friends, that faithful exiles expose the superior kingdom of God in the surrounding environment that they find themselves in, okay? What, what fuels them? What fuels their faithfulness? What is it that fuels these faithful few embedded in uh, this big, gargantuan, giant, gold head of a kingdom? Well, there's a few things, three, that I'll point, point out to you. Number one, they have hope, hope in God. Hope is part of the fuel that, that empowers their faithfulness, and the hope is in God. Notice in chapter one, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. The reason why he's able to do this sort of resolve faithfulness is because he has hope in God. When his life is in danger, when his life is in grave danger from the most powerful man in the whole world, what does he do? Well, first he replies with prudence and discretion. <laughs> and then he goes home and he prays. He doesn't panic. He doesn't wallow in pity. He goes home. He gets his buddies and they pray. Because he has a hope in God. That's the only thing that would, that would give that kind of response, is a, is a radical hope in God. The, the surrounding environment is pushing these guys all the time to assimilate, to just be like us. And, and their reaction is going to be one of two reactions. They're either going to say, okay, I'm just going to be like you, or B, I'm going to recoil and hate you and build up all these walls around me and protect myself. Have you ever watched Space Jam? Anybody watch Space Jam? 
it's a, actually, it's a really good, if you want to get a picture of exile, go home and watch Space Jam. It'll give you a really good idea of exile. I used to watch that movie so much as a kid. I was very obsessed with that movie. Here's the plot synopsis, the Cliffs Notes. This, this, this uh, race of aliens, very small aliens, comes to Earth, and they want to take the Looney Tunes as slaves and exiles. But the Looney Tunes negotiate a deal to play a basketball game because they look so puny and scrawny, and whoever wins the basketball game, um, you know, if the, if the Tunes win, they get to stay home, okay? Well, but little do they know that these aliens can then take on the form of the best basketball players of the 90s NBA, and so they go and they hack into Charles Barkley and Muggsy Bogues and um, all these guys, and they, they get their power and, as an alien, and they are like double it. And then the tunes have to respond, so they recruit Michael Jordan. Okay, I, I, it's going to make sense. <laughs> just wait. And, and they go and they play. And in the first half, it's just it's looking bleak right? It's not looking good for the tunes. They're down big deficit. Thankfully, Michael Jordan's on their team, keeping them moderately afloat, but that's about all they got. Elmer Fudd, Tasmanian Devil, Bugs and Daffy, they're just getting down on themselves. But then Bugs gets this idea. He sees a water bottle, and he sees Michael drinking from the water bottle, and he goes, oh, I know it. So he writes on this water bottle, Michael's secret stuff. Do you remember this part? Some of you are like so tracking with me right now. And, and then they go, listen, guys, if we just drink Michael's secret stuff, we're going to be like Mike. So he passes this water bottle around, and everybody just starts getting all, like, ready to go play, you know? And they're, ah, and, you know, Elmer Fudd's out there, and, uh, you know, Tasmanian Devil and Yosemite Sam, and they're all out there, and they, they feel empowered by Michael Jordan because they drank his secret stuff. It was just water. It made no difference. But what made all the difference was the belief that they were empowered by Michael Jordan. Now you see it, right? Okay. (laughs) They had Michael Jordan on their team. And there was no alien empowered by any 90s basketball player big enough to stop them. Do you get it? Was that a horrible illustration? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Watch Space Jam, and then we'll talk about it later. That's your homework. And then write a dissertation about exile themes biblically in the movie Space Jam. Being empowered by a hope in God motivates this kind of endurance that pushes. It pushes back on us all the time to to fall, to, to move backwards. And yet, by having a hope in God that's rooted and grounded in not us, not in our wisdom, not in our understanding, not in our own strength and power, it's rooted and grounded in God. And that, it gives a lot of faithful motivation, right? That fuels the ability to endure uh, by by having a a hope in God. Okay, number one, the fuel for these faithful exiles is a hope in God. Number two, the fuel for these faithful exiles is a healthy doubt in earthly kingdoms. You see, humans rule. Humans rule. God gives humans the ability to rule. Did you notice something very peculiar in Daniel's reading and interpretation of the dream? Verse 38, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, and into whose hand he, God, has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens? Nebuchadnezzar's king of the world, sure, but is he king of the birds? That's strange, right? 
Where else have you heard something about ruling over creation and an image? Thank you. Thank you, Destin. Genesis chapter 1, page 1 of the Bible. I'll read it. Ready? God said, let us make humanity in our image. Selim, statue. The Hebrew word there, same word. Let us make humanity in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion, let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. You see, God intended for humans to rule. And the picture in Genesis 1 is a garden. You've done this before if you've ever gardened or you've seen somebody garden or farm. It's harnessing. Ruling over the earth is not this um, way we think about it all the time. It's harnessing the raw potential of what the world has to offer. It's, it's ruling a, as an image of God over this, this creation. If you've ever had, a, had like a, a guinea pig or something, you kind of feel it a bit, right? And you kind of get the God complex. Because even though God created humans to rule over the world in partnership with him, we so often forget that we are an image of God and we tend to believe that we are God. And so we rule corruptly. And I say we... Because, I mean, all humans do this. Nobody is exempt from this, this way of doing things. Anytime we're given authority, what happens? We become corrupt. Okay? That's, what, that's just the way the world works. Nations come and nations go, and nations fall. That's kind of what you see in, 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 this, in this, this statue dream. Is while Nebuchadnezzar is imaging God and is ruling, he's doing it pretty poorly. And so there's going to be a train of kingdoms that comes after him, and this big, bad ruler of all the world is going to fall to another one. And then there's going to be another one, and yet another one. Greece and Persia and Rome, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and yada, yada, yada. You see kingdoms come, and they seem so huge, and they seem so formidable, and they seem so terrifying. But having a healthy doubt in those kingdoms can motivate a little bit of faithfulness. Notice what happens to these kingdoms. Then the iron and clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, altogether were broken into pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floor, and no trace of them could be found. And it just, we, we have this sense, you know, we're in America. We feel like we've been around forever. We're not even to 250 years. Babylon was there for a thousand, right? We've, we just kind of get this, this complex that, well, America's been here forever. It's going to be here forever. Facebook, it's been here forever. It's going to be here, you know? How we kind of get that? I mean, we laugh at it because we know, because we saw MySpace, right? <laughs> it was king one day and gone the next. It's like, it's like knowing that the temporary and, and fleeting nature of the way that humans do things kind of gives you a sense of like, I don't need that. We saw this with iPhones. When the first iPhone came out, it was like, whoa, dude, this is so cool. By iPhone 7 or 8, you're like, eh, I'll skip a couple. <laughs> I once um, recently was at the beach with my brother and sister, and we were uh, building a sandcastle because nothing makes you act like a kid, like playing in a sandcastle. All my illustrations are just like built for nine-year-olds right now, I feel like. <laughs> 
but they're just, they're happening to me right now. Uh, we built the sandcastle, and then we, were, we were built it right where the water was coming in, and we started digging moats and, and building dams and digging more moats, and, and we were protecting it from the waves coming in. It worked for a few minutes, but we were building a sandcastle, and we had the Pacific Ocean as our rival. What fuels Daniel's faithfulness and what fuels his friend's faithfulness is this healthy doubt in the kingdoms in which he's planted. He knows. Listen, God's kingdom is the kingdom, not this kingdom. And it may be here when I die, and it's probably been here for years before I was born. But ultimately, all the things that we try to glorify ourselves with kind of end up like chaff blowing away in the wind. Don't you see how that motivates faithfulness? Okay. Faithful exiles expose God's superior kingdom, and the fuel for that is hope in God. Number two, the fuel for that is healthy doubt in kingdoms. And number three, the fuel for that is a minority mission. Daniel gives credit where it's due. Verse 27 When he's talking to the king, Daniel said to the king, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made known to the king. You see, God planned this whole thing. God knew. God gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream. God put his people into exile. Then he gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream knowing full well that all his wise men would fail miserably and knowing full well that his faithful few, his faithful minority would come together in prayer and he could reveal it to them so that they could proclaim, so that they could expose the superiority of God's kingdom to the king of the world. That's what God's intention was from the very beginning. I have to confess this to you. I, you know, I'm, I've been as guilty as, as all of us of this understanding that, like, you know, the Old Testament, you know, it's, it's law, and the New Testament is just this grace. And, you know, there's definitely some of that, I acknowledge. But I, I have to say, I'm learning right now about the mission of God to the Gentiles in the Old Testament. It's there. God wanted to save the world, and he uses his chosen minority people to do it. And exile was actually a vehicle for him to do that very thing. It's really cool how the Bible moves like this. I'm very, I'm very excited about it. And so all of a sudden, when we, feel, when we see it that way, it, it kind of changes for us, right? It changes from this irrelevant dream story about an ancient king to being like, whoa, right? This is, this is me. This is today. I mean, Daniel's literally at work. This is his job. But it also translates to community and family, right? Neighborhood. Daniel does his job well. Notice that. Daniel's not called not to work. Not even not to work for a power that disglorifies God. He works for them. He learns their language. He changes his name. But in the midst of that, he holds on to God's superior kingdom. And he proclaims that to people. I don't know, that pumps me up. I don't know if that pumps you up, but, but that, that, that almost makes me feel more excited to be a minority missional counterculture than it does to be like this big gargantuan swath that just slowly moves over people. I just, I feel like a little bit more subversive about it. Like we're, we're bringing like almost like a virus, a good news virus <laughs> to the world. Do you guys want another nine-year-old illustration or do you want to skip it? You ever color Easter eggs, and you give it that opaque crayon, and you draw a design on it, 
And, and when you dip it into the dye, it comes out, and everything has changed except for the part that the opaque crayon was on. It's kind of like that. As we're submerged in a counterculture, as our, our, our surrounding culture, there are certain non-negotiables. There are certain things written on us that are our identity. And all the other stuff, like, we could, we could change that. We can get that colored and dyed. But the non-negotiables, we come out of this big red bowl <laughs> And we lift up, and it's just bright white egg. Like that. Okay. This book was very important to Jesus. Daniel is quoted by Jesus all the time. In fact, I'll, I'll point one out to here, because we're going we're gonna to come to communion. I want to I show you uh, a little bit about the way Jesus brings this kingdom, okay? He tells a parable in Matthew chapter 21. I don't want to read it. You can read that. Um, he tells a parable about a landowner. And this landowner uh, goes away for a while, and he gives to his uh, tenants the land, and they're going to take care of it for him and, and plant food and harvest there, okay? So then he sends back his servants when it comes harvest time to, to take the fruit, to take the, the food that they have harvested. And when they see them coming, they beat them and they stone them and they kill them, wanting their possession for themselves, forgetting that it was given to them by the owner to take care of. So he does it again. He sends more servants. And yet again, they do the same thing. And then the third time, the landowner says, well, maybe if I send my son. And here's what they say. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. We, we want to be up here. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants, Jesus asked. He's, he's talking, of course, to Bible scholars here. Then he, then he later goes, have you never read the Bible? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord is doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What is the stone? It's the kingdom of God, Right? That's what we remember from the dream. The stone is the kingdom of God. Well, what does the next verse say? Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Well, of course, Jesus' followers love this, right? He's going to just rip them to shreds. They're done for. Jesus is going to take them out. But what they didn't see, what they missed blindly, was the great irony of the kingdom of God. And that's that the way that the stone comes in and crushes all the kingdoms of the world, the great statue, the great image erected by humans, the stone comes in and smashes it. How does, it, how does, it, how does the stone smash these other kingdoms? Jesus smashes the other kingdoms by taking on the evil and sin and death upon himself. 
The most important stone in the entire kingdom of God, the cornerstone, was the one that the builders rejected. You know, the same builders that said, we don't need stone. We're going to make our own brick, and we're going to build our, our way to heaven, and we're going to make a name for ourselves, and we're going to do it our way. And, and, and because of that, they end up with these horrible, evil kingdoms over and over, and they cycle from one to the other to the other to the other. And Jesus takes all those evils, all the individual sins that everybody committed in all of these kingdoms, all of the kingdoms that are going to come and that Jesus died, took on that as well, and all of the, the communal sins that these, these kingdoms did together. Uh, the, the evil of all of the world. Jesus took that upon himself, and he allowed it to break him. That's the great irony of the kingdom of God. And it's so dissatisfying to us at times because we want justice, but the only way to get true justice and true mercy is by having the wrath of God poured out on his son Jesus. And that's what we remember today. As the worship team comes forward, I want to remind you that Jesus' body was broken for all the brokenness of every kingdom that has ever happened and that Jesus' blood was spilled for all the bloodshed that has ever happened in every kingdom to this day and that we as a church remember this and celebrate this because we are saved by him and it is through his death on the cross that all things come together. As we sing uh, a couple of songs, you're welcome to come up. We're going we're gonna to treat this next block of time as a communal time where we are all together going to go um, to the cup and bread and take them on our own time. And it's going to take, you know, several minutes. But I want you just to, to feel free to get up as you need to. We're going to sing two songs, no rush. Pray to God and, and think about what it means to be a faithful exile that it's exposing the kingdom of God. The nature of what we're doing right now is we are faithful exiles exposing the superior kingdom of God because we are exposing its superior king. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the wonderful richness of your word that doesn't oversimplify things. But Lord, you give us a roadmap for faithful exiles who can expose your superior kingdom with hope in you and doubt and kingdoms and a minority mission. And Lord, we look right now to your death on the cross and we remember it together as your people, as your family. And this is our act of worship. And this is what anchors us together, and it is what anchors us to you, the body and blood poured out on our behalf. We thank you and praise you that the rock that was rejected has become our cornerstone. In Jesus' name, amen.